1: This is the Gravity Leadership Podcast. My name is Matt. I'm here with Christy and Ben. Hey, hey! Did you hear? I don't know if you they heard your trumpet. name over. It. Well, the, but it's you're Ben. Tr- I'm you're, Ben. You're trumpet, <laughs> your trumpet, your trumpet, trumpeted your name.
0: Yeah, I've had a great deal of coffee this morning. Apparently, <laughs> Just like, ready to go. Ready to go. All right. Well, take
1: some take some deep breaths, Ben. <sighs> Christy, okay. will you just keep an eye on him Be while I try to intro this? Yeah, uh, I'm just,
0: I'm still working on my first because I'm a couple hours behind you guys. Yeah, so, you are, yeah, you know. that's, true. that's delicious
1: true. coffee. Uh, hey, so a couple things. We had a great podcast today with Matt Jansen. We'll say more about that in a second, but we wrapped up uh, this uh, series with Nathan uh, Nathan Cartagena uh, last week. And epic. Yeah, it was epic. It was pretty epic. Like if you've missed it, or maybe you found our podcast through it, um, you know, we don't always talk about. Uh, like race or critical theory, but we just, you know, thought it was important to double click on that. Yeah. And um, getting good feedback, good interaction on social yeah. media yeah. and on emails. Yeah. And I just, I want to share one email we got because uh, it's actually um, this person has created a resource that I mm-hmm. think could benefit our community. So, yeah, uh, here's the email, dear Gravity Leadership Team. That's you, Ben and Christy. <laughs> My name is Sarah Rubel. And I am a professor of religion, specializing in the history of U.S. Christianity, at Gustavus Adolphus College in Saint Peter, Minnesota. I just found it's just your up podcast.
0: The road from where I grew up.
1: That's not part of her email.
0: I know. I'm sorry. I just was <laughs> reflecting on. How, oh, yes. Sorry, I just interrupted the email. So again, t- I'm trying to take deep breaths over here, but I got excited.
1: <laughs> Ooh, Pete, Lots I know where of that coffee. Is. I've
0: and been to Saint Peter before. Okay, go ahead.
1: Eighty breaths until you talk again. All right. All right. Okay. I just, I just found your podcast. Owing to your wonderful interview with Dr. Cartagena, given your mission and connections, as well as your interest in racial justice, I wanted to let you know about a free resource, free, I created About the History of Christianity and Race in the United States. It is an eight-episode YouTube-based adult Sunday school curriculum that groups can use to learn more about how Christians have challenged and reified racism in the U.S., it is free and YouTube-based because I know that while there are some churches with expansive adult Sunday school budgets, there are many where adult education receives almost nothing and is dependent mm. on whatever resources are cheap and accessible. I wanted to make a resource created by someone who is both a Christian and a historian, available to anyone who might be interested in learning about the topic. You can find the free curriculum at my website, com. That's awesome. Yeah, isn't that rad? Yeah. So I I, uh, I I went to that website. I opened my um, Netscape browser and I went to that website. <laughs> and I she she has created a really incredible resource, and uh, you know it's it's a gift. So anyway, we're going to put a link to her website in the show notes, um, and maybe it's something you would just want to do personally, um, or maybe something you want to look at and do with your church. Anyway, I thought of course we'll share this with our community. Yeah.
0: Well, and hopefully the podcast, like, sparked conversation within your own community of your own friends. And this could be, like, a really cool thing to do together, like, over the summer. If it's eight weeks, it's like, I'm just throwing it out there for, yeah, like. what else are you going to do this summer?
1: <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> what else are you going to do? Drink more coffee for uh, Ben. Yeah, Drink more coffee. You know what, so we, so we have, uh, we do talk about other things in the Gravity Leadership podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. We have lots of episodes coming up on a variety of topics, but we wanted to maybe uh, follow up this interview with uh, Nathan with a book about, uh, in particular, like uh, a Christian wrestling with Christian doctrine and yeah. how that has shaped uh, our understanding of racism and racial justice and the way race, uh, using uh, Nathan's language, the way we're racialized. In America, mm-hmm. and so uh, this interview today is with uh, Matt Jansen, who's a teacher, professor at Hope College, and he Woo-hoo! has. <laughs> now, sorry, why you... I, no, sorry, I I didn't even have as much coffee. I
0: know, but I grew up in Holland, Michigan. I went to Hope College for a little bit of my life,
1: mm-hmm. and uh, I What's wear the, story the shirt. There?
0: What's the story was, there? Did you? Yeah, get... it's a long story. I was sick in, in the hospital, and I ended up oh. going to Hope College for for a semester. Um, and being at home with my parents. And anyway, I loved it. I love Hope College, and I have a lot of friends that
1: went there, Yeah. So. Okay, well, yeah. Uh, we, we talked with, I, I was gonna make a joke about how you got kicked out of Hope College, and then you said you were sick. And <laughs> I, then know. It, like, ruined, I know, joke. I know, <laughs> I uh, Anyway, <laughs> yeah, Matt's written a book called um, God, Race, and History. And it's essentially about how the doctrine of Providence, um, how that got mixed with racism, Mm-hmm. And, it, and and how providence was used to construct this idea of a European, a white European humanity's rule over the globe uh, as a direct mandate f- and model of God. Mm. And so um, it's yeah. one of the ways that, you know, we, uh, we, we as Christians, we want to be more cognizant and responsive to if we've contributed in any way to the suffering of people. Uh, we, I mean, we want to take responsibility for that. And mm. uh, repair that. So anyway, Matt's book, which is um, fairly academic, but I I enjoyed it thoroughly. We chat about uh, what is providence, how do we understand God's uh, sovereignty in the world, and and what does race have to do with that? Mm. And anyway, I commend I commend this interview, which is why we're <laughs> recording this intro. <laughs> now, now you can all blow very, your all, trumpet. All ben. very official. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Uh,
0: yeah, uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I think that's probably all we need to say, eh?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, we got we got, you know, two uh mentions here for places that um that Christy grew up in and that I grew up. So that's fun.
1: Yeah. yeah. And yeah. we're recording in the same town I grew up in. Yeah, there
0: hey, we go. Hey. So everybody's, Boom Everybody's got some <laughs> connections here. All right. Well, this is uh yes, I, I um I'm looking forward to um revisiting this interview recorded with Matt. Mm-hmm. Um for all those reasons you mentioned. Yep. All right. Yeah. Let's jump
1: in. Gird up the gear holes. Dr. Matt Jansen, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast.
3: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Matt is the uh, director of Emmaus Scholars Program and a visiting assistant professor of ministry studies at Hope College up in Michigan. And Anything That's else, right. Matt? Is that all you do? Do you, do you have a house? Do you have a family?
3: Uh, I do have a family. I'm married for almost 12 years. My wife's name is Amy. We have uh, two little kids, six and three, Luke and Will. Um, we've lived here in, in Holland, Michigan for three years, and before that, Spent about a decade in Durham, North Carolina. So that's more, that's our spiritual home. Um, We're Durham folks. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, Duke, right? That's right. I was in graduate school at Duke Divinity School. How was that? It was great. A transformative decade of my life led to uh, the writing of this book that we're going to talk about today. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Did you study? Did you actually get a study with Carter and Jennings? Or are they gone by the time? You did. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I was there. Dr. Jennings and Dr. Carter were both on my dissertation committee. So I was a student of theirs for almost 10 years. Um, And obviously, they had a a big impact on my my life and, and my development as a teacher and scholar too.
1: Well, well, well. Good thing you're here, Pat, because we have lots of questions. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, no, uh, Jake Cameron Carter and Willie James Jennings have been a huge influence for Ben and I and for many of the listeners of the Gravity Leadership Podcast, uh, especially Carter, but also Jennings. Their writings can be dense. Also, their books are expensive. Uh, <laughs> and so it's good that we've got someone who's going to maybe translate. Although I just I just Googled your book. We're going to talk about your book, God, Race, and History, uh, Liberating Providence, uh, and the first return on your book for Amazon is the price is $100 That's for the right. hardcover. Is That's that, right. Is that how much your book is? It's uh, the
3: insane world of academic book publishing <laughs> when you are an early career scholar. So <laughs> oh. I apologize to the listeners. I will say that you can get 30% off if you go to my Twitter page. Oh. There's like there's a code to get it from the publisher. But again, nothing but apologies for the price. This is yeah. the, the cost of doing business as an early career scholar in academia these days. Yeah,
1: so let's jump in, because I, I have lots of questions. The book is about the providence of God and how, um, obviously, the, the title basically lays it out, How how the history of the Christian church and race play into that. Where did you get... We just talked about the ten years you studied with Carter and Jennings, so that might be part of this. But what's the genesis of this book? How did how did this book come to be?
3: Yeah, in some ways, it goes back to questions I've been asking for a long time, like since I was in high school. Um, I don't want to age place myself in age wise too clearly for your listeners, um, but I'm on the younger side. <laughs> so I was uh, I was in high school during uh, September 11th and the war on terror. Mm -hmm. And um, became pretty disillusioned with the way that a lot of Christians seem to kind of have this image of George Bush riding into, riding, you know, around the world on a cruise missile, spreading Christianity and freedom (laughs) and democracy. And that somehow this was the activity of God was somehow compatible with this or even present in this. Yeah, yeah. My family are historically uh, Mennonites. The Jansen family spent about 100 years from 1850 to 1950 running all over Europe and the United States trying to avoid conscription into military service because of (laughs) historic, you know, Convictions about pacifism and thinking yeah. the Bible mm. taught that Christians shouldn't kill other people. Yeah, um, my grandfather was, you know, put into civilian public service during the Second World War because he was a conscientious objector and and wouldn't um, sign up for the draft. And so that's always sort of a part of my family background. But for me, it really became personal during the first decade of of the 21st century, um, and really starting to ask questions about: Is this what? God's action in history looks like? Is this what the providential workings of God are? Is it Mm. the kind of Christianity and the kind of cowboy, patriotic, uh, militaristic kind of complex? Um, And so I went to Divinity School to try to figure out some of those questions about sort of imperialism and US exceptionalism. And what did this all have to do with Christianity? And was my faith being co-opted? Mm. Um, was speech about the Christian God being used as ideological cover for things that might be deeply unchristian. Um, <laughs> and I got to Durham to go to Duke just after the election of President Obama, and so mm. witnessed a sort of national backlash, the sort of rise of the Tea Party and mm-hmm. reemergence of very public and overt white supremacist movements in the United States. Um My own state of North Carolina experienced a dramatic transition in our state government facilitated by Citizens United, which allowed a lot of money to flow into elections and Hmm. um, the uh, invalidation by the Supreme Court of a key section of the Voting Rights Act, which enabled um, a, a huge shift in how people were able to vote in North Carolina in the second decade of the 21st century. And then I was in Durham, which is a city that has a very historic African-American community. It was one of the first places after the Civil War that formerly enslaved people came and congregated and built uh, a a very self-sufficient economic, political, educational life together. Um, Hmm. And so at the time that I was moving to Durham, it was quite the opposite. There was a sort of tidal wave of gentrification sweeping through neighborhoods that had been um, African-American since the Civil War. And all those things sort of collided. And so my questions about sort of pacifism and militarism and imperialism expanded dramatically into questions Mm. about race and whiteness and white supremacy. Um, And I was lucky, as we said, to find myself in a place where there were some folks like Willie Jennings, like J. Cameron Carter, like Ebony Marshall Terman, uh, William Turner, just some really wonderful faculty to think through these questions with. And so that sort of shaped... Um, these questions, and mm. providence became this kind of repetitive theme that I kept coming back to, this idea that, you know, God is working in the world, and yeah. that's a, a really dangerous thing to talk about if you get <laughs> it wrong, right?
1: Yeah, right, and I think that, that's what struck me, and there's a lot of ground to cover here, because your, your book mm. is essentially like a double-clicking on different theologians and how they see providence, and then you weave it together in... Uh, maybe pulling contributions and and discussing with each of them. But for many of us, uh, the providence of God, it gets boiled down to maybe the boilerplate uh, syllogism that God is in control. Right. God is in control. Um, and maybe we can start there, because that's sort of the uh, providence for dummies that most of us just carry around, like latently, you know? Yeah. Um. What are your problems with that? So, I think this is actually a really
3: great entryway into even some of the core questions that the book addresses about race, because I think some of the fundamental problems are inherent even in that sort of phrasing. Um, there's nothing There's nothing wrong per se, but I think it is indicative of an example of the way that we tend to be very abstract when we talk mm. about God's yes. relationship to creation. Um, when you say God, right, you always got to ask, well, which God are you talking about?
0: Mm -hmm.
3: And one of the problems with a lot of Christian speech about God's providence is that it's incredibly abstract. Who is this God and what is the shape of this providence? And when you have that abstraction, people tend to feel the need to project, to fill in what's missing. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when we project we start to take our own ideas about what it would mean to run the world or, right, govern all of creation, and we start attributing that back onto God. We start projecting that language. (laughs) Um, And oftentimes that means that we start talking about God, like God's activity is just the same as human activity, but maybe like, you know, on steroids. It's like Mm -hmm. to the nth degree, And I think there's a real danger in that because we start projecting our own theories, our own ideologies, our own assumptions about what it means to act. And we start saying, well, that's how God acts. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's, you know, on the one hand, I can understand why people wind up doing that because we get caught in this bind where it's either God is in control of this or the implication is, or God's not in control of this. And obviously a lot of people are, are wanting to say that, well, that's, that second thing isn't true, right? God's not yeah. weak or or ambivalent. Um, and so they feel kind of like yeah. uh, they're pressed with these kind of two mm-hmm. answers, either God's in control or yeah. God's not in control. Right. And that is a result of not thinking concretely enough and specifically enough about the fact that God is the God revealed in the Jewish flesh of Jesus of Nazareth and not some kind of abstract, strong-armed, you know, yeah. king that floats in the air somewhere high above the atmosphere
0: yeah yeah so people feel constrained you know it's almost like the specter of atheism or you know the specter of chaos like looms large in their imaginations and they don't they don't see they don't see a way out of the bind of saying well either god's in control and that means like all of this is Uh, he's, he's literally sort of meticulously controlling everything through a power that, you know, is like what we see in the political world or, you know, how I run my life, you know, just expanded or like, you know, like you said, like it's, it's understandable because the other option feels like, well, maybe I'm not a Christian or maybe God's not real or, you know, um. Scary. The other options are scary.
3: (laughs) Yeah, and I think the my hope would be that we can realize that those aren't the only two options, and Mm -hmm. that that's a false dichotomy that people get stuck with, and then they do get put in that position. Right. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, let me just double click then on that, Matt, because at some point, at some point, this book was about race and providence. Um, Was this a book about race that you had to deal with providence about, (laughs) or was this a book about providence that you couldn't avoid talking about race in?
3: That's a good question. I don't remember quite how it started, but it's been pretty entangled the entire time.
1: <laughs> and maybe help us understand why, because yeah. I, I, think, I think we do abstract conversations about God's providence, and we use systematics and these large categories and philosophical constructs, but for you it's important to get granular and particular in, in not only God's story, but our story. Why? I think the greatest case,
3: well, greatest is a tough word, an important case of abstraction, um, an example of what can go wrong with abstract speech about God's providence, is the creation of the modern racial imaginary as such, is the invention of whiteness in the 15th and 16th century. So sort of the first part of what I'm trying to do in the book is show how these ideas about race and whiteness and the sort of whole way of thinking about the world through a racial lens, well, that grows out of Christianity. Christianity mm. and Christian theology specifically is the language that's used to imagine and invent race at the very beginning. And of course, this is what Dr. Carter and Dr. Jennings have shown so um, extensively in their own work. Yes. And part of what I'm trying to do in the book is say that, well, providence is a huge part of the Christian speech that was used to think about race. Mm, and in mm-hmm. fact, whiteness, being white, white identity emerges as a kind of Providential language that replaces God and and certainly Jesus of Nazareth with European men as <laughs> the ones who are providentially ordering the world and mm. guiding and governing history towards its you know final outcomes and that mm. this is not just sort of a metaphorical thing but that this is in fact exactly what happened on the ground over time mm. um, you know it was a time when Christian theology was not just a sort of private discourse for a few people, but was you know, something that was a governing way that people thought about the world in Europe at this time.
1: Yeah. And so
3: in the age of sort of conquest and discovery, as as all this new stuff is happening to Europeans and they're trying to make sense of it, it's, it's Christian theologians that they turn to. How do we think about how to order the world and hmm. what is happening in history? And those are all questions that the doctrine of providence touches on. And so- christian speech about providence becomes a resource to try to imagine the sort of place of europeans in the world Um, and like i said the sort of second half of that is then once sort of the racial imagination takes hold and people imagine themselves as white and build the world around that then Hmm. that starts to come back and distort people's attempts to then go on and talk about god's providence right what's Hmm. god doing in the world well Hmm. You know, a great example, of this is slaveholders in the antebellum South who said, not only is slavery not a sort of um, neutral or morally morally necessary, maybe morally wrong, but a sort of necessary evil, they said, no, this is part of the providential ordering of society and of the globe that God has created. And so the book is trying to see both sides of that coin, both how Christian theologies of providence sort of provide the ideas that help people start thinking about white supremacy and whiteness itself, but then also how then that comes back to really distort people's attempts to think like, what does God want for the world today? Yeah. And of course, that's some people's attempts, that's, that's white people's attempts. Um, and so you have mm-hmm. African-American Christians, right, all throughout the antebellum period who are saying, well, no, 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 that's not uh, what God is up to, God is actually on the move through abolition. Hmm. Um, And so for me, that raises really really important questions of like, so how do we have speech about what God is up to that is meaningful? Because some people would say, well, everybody's just pointing at the things they like and saying, well, that's what God is doing, right? It's just my subjective preferences. And then I just take God and say, well, it's a divine stamp of approval for my political ideology or my vision Mm -hmm. of the world. And so, the question is, is it even really possible to have meaningful speech about what God is doing in the world such that, as one of my favorite theologians, James Cone, would say, we can join God in that work? Um, So, those are some Mm -hmm. of the questions that are sort of circulating around in the book.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and this goes back to the projection thing you talked about, how white people, white Northern and Western Europeans projected onto God their own sort of imperialistic impulses. And in doing that abstracted providence from everyday particularities into this monolithic hegemonic frame that ordered reality that wasn't of God. In fact, it was, you know, we can say, can we say, we can say this, whiteness as a construct is demonic. It's like antichrist in the sense of that it, it, it turns the kingdom of God inside out and upside down. And it creates partiality as a way of ordering bodies rather than Mm -hmm. mutuality. Um, And so it's, it's actually contrary to the gospel. Yeah, um, it's, it's
3: antichristic in that it is literally a counterfeit of the truth. Yes.
1: Mm. Yes. And it doesn't, I often feel like we're taking crazy pills here, uh, to quote Will Ferrell in, <laughs> um, in a movie. I feel like we're taking crazy pills because the, we have to say, do we have to say this? Like, do we have to say that, like, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, man or woman, slave free? Like do we have to actually say that the invention of race was an undoing of new creation? Like it's 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 a uh, it's a protest. It's a it's a insurrection against the kingdom of God. Um, and it feels like that's scandalous to say in the church today. But I'm glad Matt that you're saying it. I w- I want to ask you as you went to then uh, de-abstract, maybe uh, get particular. You chose three people to talk. In dialogue with in this book, Hegel, uh, James Cohn, and Karl Barth. How do, maybe, why did you choose those three? And then uh, we can maybe double click on them.
3: Yeah. So I chose Hegel as sort of an embodiment of the problem because I thought that um, Hegel's sort of philosophical reflections on history are one of the most sort of bald faced instances of the kind of thing I'm talking about in mm-hmm. the history of sort of modern Europe. Um, and so that was a that was sort of a, a snapshot of, of the problem. Um, Hegel basically is very upfront about the fact that uh, he's going to take the Christian doctrine of Providence and he's going to modernize it. Um, you know Christians used to think God's providence was mysterious and we you know and now we're, we're we are modern European men with the powers of reason. We don't have to, be shy about naming what God is doing in the world. And mm-hmm. he goes beyond that to say, I can I can make a scheme, a kind of divine history of the world that orders not only the sort of historical progress of world history, but also the geography of the globe and its peoples are ordered according to this sort of hierarchy. And so what happens with Hegel is that, He takes a Christian doctrine of providence that says God's action in the world is revealed through the incarnation of Jesus Christ and substitutes European man into the spot that used to be occupied by Jesus and says, we're going to run the whole doctrine of providence, but instead of running it through Jesus, we're going to run it through European men and their civilization as the sort of paradigmatic um, incarnation of what it looks like to be divine in history. Mm. Europe is the apex of God's working in the world, and we're going to run it back once we take that as sort of its its climactic point. Yeah. So that was why I chose Hegel. And then Barth and Cohn are two people that I think in their own theological work tried to wrestle with that problem because Karl Barth, of course, lived through the Nazi crisis and National Socialism in Germany and saw the way that someone like Adolf Hitler— invoked providence all the time Yes. Um, and sort of did the theological math and said, these things are all connected. And and national socialism was not some kind of aberration, but was in fact the kind of final logical conclusion of the project of, of Europe for a couple of hundred years. Um, and so Bart was trying to think, how did Christians get so easily um, duped into buying mm. this total counterfeit of Christian thinking about providence and Christian speech about God's work in the world. Mm-hmm. And how can we prevent that? So, Bart was trying to do that in the 1940s, and he was also seeing the Cold War coming online, and he saw sort of Western narratives of, you know, we're the new good guys in the world, uh, post-World War II, and also Soviet uh, sort of providential aspirations, and saw the ways that this was, these were two providential freight trains that were headed for <laughs> collision course. Um and so, and was trying to think how how do we just talk meaningfully about God's work in the world so that it doesn't get captured either by East or West. And then, of course, James Cone is doing something a little bit related to that in the United States in the late 1960s, um, watching, you know, um, urban rebellions in places like Newark and Detroit in 1967, reflecting on the assassination of Dr. King in 1968. Cone sits down in the summer of 68 to start his first book, and then sort of writes for eight years, nonstop, trying to think Mm. through these questions. How does white Christianity corrupt and counterfeit the Christian vision of God's action in history? And how can we recover a more truthful vision that says, not only is God not giving a rubber stamp of approval to white supremacist Christianity, but God is in fact working through movements for black liberation, um, which mm. were like the black power movement was what Cohn was thinking of. But again, these questions are all the thing about reading James Cohn is that it's like, it could have been written yesterday. It was written more than 50 years ago, a right. lot of it. And so those were sort of the stepping stones and Cohn was, was drawing somewhat on his theological training around Karl Barth and had wrote, written his dissertation on Karl Barth. And so for me, there was a sort of nice Hegel to Bart to Cohn was a kind of running dialogue over the history of sort of Protestant theology in the modern world about how we talk about providence in a way that can avoid getting sucked into whiteness.
2: We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com/academy.
1: So Hegel and Bart uh, don't really talk about whiteness, but but you it sounds like what you're what you're doing then is saying just as Hegel and uh Asserted that this rationalistic Enlightenment European worldview, and just as Bart lived through like the uh, National Socialism of Germany, and how they asserted providential manifest destiny, etc. And uh, you're saying that whiteness functions around and inside of all of that. Like, is is whiteness the frame in which these um, these oppositions to God's actual providence are? maybe grow up in? Is that what, is that how you argue it?
3: Yeah, I think that's one way of putting it. Um, I think that what we see coming out of European Christianity in the modern world is an attempt to be like God, to put white European Christians in the place of God in the world, mm. right? Um, to create the world anew. Um
1: and, and this, that's, expi- that's explicit in, in, like, the writings of, like, John Locke and others. Like, mm-hmm. as, as the Europeans came to the U.S., they saw themselves fulfilling, fill the earth and subdue it. And, yeah. And, and this, this a creation mandate gave them, because these peoples were wasting the land. I mean, they were just, you know, there was no industrial right. impulse in them, and, they, you know, they yeah. didn't work they weren't mixing. They
3: weren't mixing their labor with the land to turn it into private property. Was what Locke was worried about.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. And he he really got his britches in a bunch over that.
3: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think that this is this is sort of the one of the fundamental stories of the modern world. And of course, because it comes out of Europe, and then Europe functionally dominates the globe, it spreads to become a global story that we're all still stuck inside of. And Karl Barth was experiencing the sort of final backlash where what had been exported around the globe in terms of white supremacy and fascism for hundreds of years, finally came back into Europe itself through Hitler. Um, And Cohn is on the sort of the, the first thrust of that, right? Um, Somebody that talks about this is, is uh, the the author Amy Césaire, who was writing in the 1950s and said, you know, the world war two and the Holocaust was the boomerang effect and Europeans, before they were victims of, of national socialism, of the Nazis, were its collaborators when it was being exported to non-European peoples around the globe. Um, and so I think the, this is sort of the, the wages of whiteness, right? This is the yeah. chickens come home to roost when the things that white Christians have been exporting for a long time all of a sudden show up in their own backyards. Um, everybody panics um, this is, this is interesting, especially true of Christian theologians talking about providence in the 1950s, a whole lot of Christian theologians say, we can't even talk about providence anymore. How can you talk about God's providence in a world with, with machine guns and atom bombs that with such historic suffering? And a lot of people point out, well, one of them, maybe I point out in my book, <laughs> you know, why does all of a sudden in 1950 suffering become such an obstacle to Christians talking about providence? Well, it's because it's suffering of European peoples, yes. right? And before that, doctrine of providence, not only was it not challenged by suffering of non-European peoples, they were invoking divine providence as the framework to think about and, and justify what they were doing in their colonial enterprises. Right. So how does providence work so well to justify... European colonial endeavors, but then when Europeans themselves come under duress, all of a sudden it's like, God is dead, right? Because there's so much suffering in the world, we can't even imagine it. And it's like, so whose suffering matters for the doctrine of providence? and it depends who's articulating that account of providence,
1: right? Right. Who's the winners? Who's the losers? Uh, As long as they're suffering, God is providential. But when we suffer— or or when, when even like taking Hegel's understanding of providence, when the full flowering of our yeah. power is boomerang back on ourselves, like you said, then we maybe there's like this liminal moment where we can question what are we what are we saying when we say God is in control here? Yeah. Yeah, ben what are you hearing? What what's stirring for you?
0: Yeah, I mean this is I mean a couple things. Um one is just a i guess just a reflection on i I think one of the one of the themes that I'm seeing um, come to the fore in a lot of our listeners um, a lot of them are church leaders, you know people who are you know week in week out uh, talking with you know just normal people in the pews and um, preaching sermons and all of that kind of thing um but I, I'm just struck again by the importance of doing this kind of work of like tracing the history of our theological ideas. Where did they come from? You know, because I think there's a lot of. Um, we had uh, Beth Allison Barr on the podcast, and she talks a lot about patriarchy, you know, and all that kind of thing. And she said, patriarchy shape shifts. And I'm hearing the same thing in kind of your account of the doctrine of providence and whiteness. Like it it shifts to the point where we don't really understand where we got these ideas, right? And we've kind of scrubbed out the most egregious parts of them. And it just feels like, well, we just believe the gospel.
2: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, like that's just, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's really difficult, I guess, for people to really understand what's so egregious about some of these things until you take the time to kind of trace these ideas, which feels like a lot of work. So I guess that there's that's a challenge, right? Like I think I think a lot of pastors would listen to something like this and a lot of them are excited about this and they're discovering some new things, but a lot of them I know have a lot of just insecurity about it. Like, oh my gosh, like what does this mean for my leadership? What does this mean for my faith? What does this mean for the people that I preach to? It's just like a lot. So anyway, so I'm, I'm struck by that, that you know there's there's a history here that is a lot more people are, a lot more leaders are, are learning about, which is really good. But it leads me to my question, Matt, Doctor Matt, mm-hmm. um, not you, not you, Matt Tabby. I talk to you all the time, so, and you're also muted. You're trying to speak, but you're muted. Anyway, uh, never mind. We will. Sorry, never know. I just said. Oh, I, there we go. i was I'm just going to say we'll never know. I can know hear myself fine say.
1: when I'm muted, but you can't hear me when I'm <laughs> muted. What's wrong with you? I, I, uh, why don't you ask Doctor Matt a question? Because you and I can chat anytime.
0: Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, uh, so, Doctor Matt, uh, the question I do have is is kind of a practical one. So, um if, you know, what what would you say to someone maybe who's listening? Maybe they do have some res- level of responsibility to, to preach and to teach and to, you know, they're, they're growing in their conviction about these things, but they don't like, you know, they don't want to just give people a reading list of like, here's a dozen books, you know. Um, do you have any advice, I guess, for leaders who are like, where do I start with this stuff? Like, how do, you know, maybe I've got a church full of people who are like, God's in control, you know, and they're, you know, they don't see what the big deal is about, you know, whiteness and they're They bristle a little bit when people say things like that. Like, what would you say to leaders who are trying to figure out how to, like, make a dent, make an inroad yeah. in people's imaginations about these things?
3: Yeah. Well, I think that an interesting thing about this topic is that, sure, it is this sort of dense philosophical, historical sort of thing, but it's also very practical. Mm. Um, people need to you know, people of, of faith and and church leaders, pastors, if you think God is active in the world today, you got to try to figure out how and where yeah, and with right. who. And ideally, so that huh. your action yeah. in life can be responsive to that work and maybe, you know, not to be presumptuous, but maybe even participate in that work.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, and I, I very much empathize with that. You know, we see people coming out all the time and saying, this is what God is about, right? And mm-hmm. this is what God is about. Mm-hmm. And so how do you as a as a church leader or just as a person, if you think that God is at work in the world today, how do you kind of identify it? Yeah. Um, and this is where I think you don't need um, a huge reading list or a 500-year a history of a doctrine. Yeah. Um, you need to, you know, Turn to the New Testament first of all, um, because what does God's action in history look like? Well, yeah. it's it's not mysterious. Um, mm. God's revealed what God's action looks like in in the covenant with Israel and the incarnation of Jesus, yeah. um, and so so we have we have a pattern for what God's action looks like. And this was the argument of James Cone. James Cone made very strong assertions that God was working through the Black Power Movement in the late 1960s and early 1970s. -hmm. But he went to uh, extensive lengths to say, this isn't just my personal opinion, or I like Black Power, and so I'm gonna say this is what God is up to. He said, we can look at how God acts in Israel and Jesus and mm-hmm. use that as a lens to then turn to our own world and say, mm. this is how God acts today. And so, mm. when you look at something like maybe the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, you got, you know, got some people who are saying, this is God's, God's working through this, right? And they've that's got right. the signs right they that said it.
0: Right, right. It's um,
3: explicit. I want to say that's definitely not the case. But then somebody might say, well, Why? You know, it's just because right. you're. Right, or how do you know? Right, yeah. do you know? Yeah. and you're of just course, just saying that because you're a Democrat, right? Right, yeah, because whatever. you're a liberal, and you're just trying yeah, to yeah. make right. We're all Bob Dylan right. with God on our side, right? And yeah,
0: there we go. And so I yeah. think
3: I think turning this to the specificity of Jesus's life as a model yeah. for God's action, and say, what kinds of things was Jesus up to? And where are those same kind of things happening today? Because Jesus isn't stuck in the first century. That's another thing James Cone liked to say. Jesus mm. is present in our world through the Spirit. And so the Spirit yeah. continues to do the kind of work that Jesus did. And so yeah. this sort of, we look to Scripture to say, how does God act? Who was yeah. Jesus? And then we say, how is Jesus present today? And I think yeah. asking those sorts of questions in dialogue with people like James Cone and others can be a really practical starting point for folks who are interested in thinking about this.
1: That's, yeah. that's really helpful for me. that's yeah, really helpful. Really helpful. Um, and I, I, I want to maybe make this even more explicit, Matt, and you tell me if I, I heard you right or if I was just daydreaming. But there, there, there's this, pr- the abstraction happens when we take like, we take proof texts. We take like sentences from scripture, like um, uh, every person should place themselves under the authority of the government, let's say, Romans thirteen sure. one. we take sure. this, that's not even a full verse, right? It's just right. half of a verse, and then we we slap it on somebody like Donald Trump, and we say this person is, like, you have to submit to this person. This person is put in place by God, um, right? We do that work. That's sort of the abstraction work you're talking about. But what you're saying is moving, by the way, we don't do that with Barack Obama or Joe Biden for some <laughs> reason. It's crazy. Or the, Or the insurrection, <laughs> by the way. Or the insurrection, you know? they're not sending yeah. to the governing authorities, yeah. they're, they're trying yeah, yeah. to overthrow them. <laughs> overthrow so them, yeah. This is the problem with the abstraction, like extracting texts and then using them inside of the existing frames we have, is we end up being hypocritical and duplicitous, and we don't even know it. And there's, mm-hmm. there's actually no coherent way to hold together an ethic that is applied faithfully and consistently. Because the only thing we're aligned to, and the only thing that we are in allegiance to, is this... Is a superstructure that's driving how we what appeals to us, right? And you name it as whiteness in this book, uh, which has an entire, um, has an entire architecture made up of all kinds of just different assumptions. But what you're saying is, let's start with the particularity of what Jesus said and did in uh, a large, powerful system that that had logic to it. And that, um, in some ways, the Roman Empire is a lot like the United States of America. So how did Jesus navigate those relationships? Um, and, and one of the things that Cone, I think, understands, and I think you you keep hinting at, and I'd like for you to talk about it more for us, is um, how do we learn to see what Jesus was doing with power? Because I, I think that's something I missed in my, I didn't go to Duke, kind of kind of wish I was there. Uh, I went somewhere else, and we never talked about power, really, unless we were talking about operating in the Spirit to do, like, really bold things, like tell people about Jesus on a beach, mm-hmm. or, um, yeah, or, like, charismatic gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jesus navigated power in a, in a in a way that I think James Cone understands, and it feels like, unless we can name that, we we get co-opted by the... Existing power structures we operate in. Um, am I on? Am I on the right track there? And how do you? How do we recover that vision? If if so, yeah, I think that's mm. right. I think part of it is learning
3: to. It depends who you are, and it depends your formation, right? Um, if you are a white Christian that has learned to see the world and read scripture through the lens of whiteness, uh, you're gonna have to start listening to some different voices who are gonna show you things you may have missed before, like you know. You have to read Howard Thurman, um, Jesus and the Disinherited, when Thurman points out Jesus was uh, an ethnic minority um, in an occupied country under military control, whose like very first meaningful experience was basically to be uh, a refugee from violence and cross right, uh, go to Egypt, fleeing for the life of him and his family. Um, I, you know was in college before I probably thought about that at any great length, right? Again, this is abstraction. Jesus is the universal savior. And the thing you need to know is Jesus died on the cross. You believe it, your sins are forgiven, and you go to heaven when you die. Not only is that a really abstract story, it's just also like a false story because it totally misses the fact that the story of scripture is a story of new creation, not of escaping and blowing up the creation. Right, right. Um, and so there's so much that has been missed, and we can say whether it's intentional or not. It doesn't really matter. The fact is that for so many white folks who are Christians, they've just received such a choked out version of Christianity for so long that you have to you have to find new voices to to get your Christianity back. Right? It's not it's not just about like um, I don't know. It's not about like sensitivity training. This is about the integrity of your faith as a believer, right? And how do yeah. you know, you know, Frederick Douglass, the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ. And between the two, I see the widest possible distance such that to basically be for one is to be against the other. I talk about this with my students a lot. You know, growing up, I just thought being a Christian, that's the goal, right? If you That's what we're aiming for. I want to be a Christian. I want to help other people be Christian. And then I had to learn from Frederick Douglass that I had to be more specific than that. Christian, <laughs> that is a part of the Christianity of this land or the Christian that is a part of the Christianity of Christ. Um, yeah. And that's that's a, a work that entails a lot of unlearning for a lot of folks and then a lot of learning um, new ways of seeing Jesus and reading scripture.
1: Yeah. So I hear you getting particular, listening to people that whose lives and social location maybe are m- closer to where Jesus was. Who who actually uh, interact with systems and structures and powers in a in a more proximal way that Jesus would have, um, and and the third thing I hear you saying is we can we can begin to move towards this is what God's doing in the world by watching what He did in the narrative of Scripture, and then moving towards similar things that are happening in our world today. Uh, as we as we begin to wind up here, let me. Bounce one of the things off you that um, immediately comes to mind that I've got deep suspicions about, right? And so you you have you have this argument in conversations about providence where you know God sent the flood and God sent the twelve plagues and God uh, drove out the Canaanites, right? So so that's how we can say that God sent a tornado in this town because the gays were gathering, you know, or God sent AIDS <clears throat> as a judgment on the land, or God sent a hurricane to do X, Y, and Z. Um, So maybe help us. How is that move different than what you're saying?
3: Yeah. Again, I think at the root of a lot of those claims, one, like you mentioned, is grabbing some verses that sort of prop up a certain vision of agency that you want to attribute to God and then using those verses to find what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, But I also think that um, what needs to be contrasted with that is, again, a Christological vision of how God works in the world Mm -hmm. that's not just a few proof texts, but is drawn from the sort of whole narrative of Scripture read with Christ at the center of it. And so, you know, rather than having an abstract notion of everything that happens must have happened because God wanted it to happen, because God is omnipotent, and again, omnipotent is a big abstract word. What do you mean by that? Do you just mm-hmm. mean my idea of something that's infallible and never is infinitely strong and then I'm just projecting it onto God? Instead, it's it's the God that is you know, uh, providentially engaged in our world today is the God that was revealed in the crucifixion and resurrection of this Jewish human being, Jesus of Nazareth. And so God's agency in the world doesn't stop being loving, doesn't stop being cruciform just because Jesus has ascended. And now all of a sudden we're back to some kind of abstract, you know, omnipotent force God that's sort of floating in the ether out there. Yes. It's still Jesus acting through the spirit in the world today. And so for me, when I think about what is God doing in the world today, it has to, has to line up with that. Um, does God send tornadoes that kill innocent children? Bec- you know, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and I think that, again, it gets to the language of what do you mean by send and what do you mean by God? And so my account is I want to say when we talk about what God's doing in the world, it has to be rooted in the idea that it is Jesus active through the spirit to be present to our world today. Um, and that's different than saying, you know, God rules history I'm saying Jesus is present in history through the Spirit. Um, And that that is not only um, a more ethical way to construe God's work, but it's also a more Christian way to construe God's work. And I think one of the things I've I've heard as I've listened to a few of your episodes is a lot of people are realizing that the people who claimed to speak the most authoritatively for what God's really like You know, what the Bible really says are actually some of the folks that are finding what they want to find um, Mm, and then sort of rewriting the script to match it after the fact. And so there's an opportunity there, I think, for people who really are trying to discern what does it mean to read scripture faithfully? What does it mean to be a part of the work that Jesus is doing in the world today through the Spirit? There's a chance to sort of maybe question some of the dominant frameworks that have been given. Um, and imagine some, some new ways.
1: Yeah. The book, again, is God, Race, and History um, by Matt Jansen. Matt, what are you working on now? What's next for you after you tackle God, Race, and History? You know, this little bite-sized theological chunk.
3: <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm in the early stages of a, of a second book. Um, it's, it's titled Confederate Theology, White Supremacy, and Christian Doctrine. Um, And I'm going to do, you know, more of of some of what I've done in the first book, but looking more specifically at um, U.S. history and the history of Christian theology in the United States and the way that one of the things that Christian theologians in the United States need to reckon with is that for a long time, there were a lot of Christian theologians who were white supremacists (laughs) and who, you know, articulated really sort of quote-unquote impressive accounts of Christian doctrine that went on for thousands of pages and had read every word of John Calvin and Francis Turretin and all the Reformed scholastics. And they saw all this as being totally compatible with slavery, with white supremacy. Um, yeah, and that's, with violence. With, and with war. violence. Yeah. And, and that's a part of the history of Christian theology that I think Christian theologians need to wrestle with and say, how can this thing that we are supposed to do um, have been so e- again so easily co-opted by something that is so anti-christian um, and mm-hmm. what does that say for how we think and do christian theology moving forward um, so that's what I'm working on sort of in these these next couple of years hopefully
1: that's exciting Matt and we uh, just just to commend this we we get this when it comes to like our family history like if there's a long history of alcoholism, we know that we we have to still reckon with that today like it shows up in our family dynamics and even in our even our genes and our DNA, and so to to double click on this to be intentional about uh, maybe interrogating and ass- and assessing this is not to pull up things that we that are in the past, but it's to then put them before us and say how have we have we reckoned with this? Do we is there a rectification to make, and do we do we need to? to do some retrieval and some repentance here. So that sounds like an incredible project. Many blessings on that. Um, Are are you, if people wanted to connect with you online, you mentioned a Twitter account. You want to get, you want to plug your pluggables? Is what I'm saying? Sure,
3: yeah. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Matt Jansen. Uh, You can look at my faculty page and and get my email if you want to write to me. Um, That's the limitation of my, I'm trying to constrict my social media usage. So I've stick to Twitter and email for the most part.
1: Yeah, you hear that, Ben? That's some good advice. I might have to take you up on that. You know, there's some providential
3: mm-hmm. discourses in how technology uh, omnipotently suffuses <laughs> our lives, but we'll save that for another conversation. <laughs>
0: All right, man. That, well, that's that's where my head's at, man. I, I want to <laughs> have that conversation.
1: Matt, thanks for being with I us today. I have a today. lot of questions.
3: Yeah, it's been great to be with you both.
1: Peace.
2: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.